Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hey everyone, Jody here. It is that week between Christmas and New Year's, hopefully one in which you're getting some time off or some time to catch up on things, or maybe you're right back at it. Um, Over the next week, we're going to be running some special episodes, a couple favorites from 2021, and then a two-part special we recorded looking back at the year, following up on some of the stuff we missed. Now, one quick note, it is the end of the year, so I would be remiss if I didn't point out that we couldn't make this show without the direct support of our listeners. So if you are thinking about some year-end giving, thinking about the things that matter to you this year, consider becoming a member of Radiotopia and supporting this show and all the other shows on the network. You can find a form on our website, thisdaypod.com. Once again, thisdaypod.com if you want to become a member. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting throughout the year. Here we go. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, April 6th, 1712, a group of enslaved people set fire to an outhouse at the home of Peter Van Tilburg on Maiden Lane in what was then the northern edge of New York City. Now, incidentally, for anyone who knows New York City, this was way downtown, but this is a nice reminder that in 1712, the northern edge of New York City is like Soho. Uh, But anyway, back to our story. The fire was a signal to others to begin a revolt. And when white people came out of their homes to see what was going on with the fire, they were confronted by a band of something like 25 or 50 enslaved people armed with guns, axes, and knives. Eventually, over the course of this 1712 slave revolt, some nine white people would be killed and more than 70 black enslaved Americans would be arrested or jailed in the aftermath. So here to talk about the New York City slave revolt of 1712, slavery as an institution in New York City in that era are, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And I should have said Newly minted, newly tenured Kelly Carter Jackson of <laughs> yeah. Wesley. Kelly, you got tenure. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. I feel completely relieved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you could, if listeners can see a sort of calmer, freer <laughs> Kelly, if you can hear that quality in her voice, now you know why. In addition to, you know. Very true. Very true. It feels yes. good. It feels great. Thanks. All right. Well, but congratulations, seriously. Um, so, Kelly, why, why don't you start here and, yeah. and maybe let's paint a picture of slavery in New York City in the first half of the 18th century. Sure. 
I think I think it's important to let listeners know that in every single colony in America there was slavery. So even though we tend to think of this as a as a largely southern phenomenon, there was a lot of slavery in New York City. In fact, right after South Carolina, New York City held um, the second position for the greatest uh, largest population of enslaved people. Um, by the time you get to the 1750s, you know one out of four or one out of five. Um, Residents of New York City are enslaved people. So uh, so it's a really big deal. Uh, I will also say that it looks different than slavery in Virginia yep. or slavery in Maryland, let's say. Uh, you don't have large plantations and things of that nature. You have what scum- some scholars have called a more democratized version of slavery, meaning that every person owns about one or two slaves. So instead hmm. of, you know, five or ten people owning two or three hundred people, now you have every single person owning one, owning two, and they are working a myriad of jobs. They're dark dock workers, they're sailors, they're carpenters and masons. Um, there's not a, a single act of uh, part of labor that an enslaved person wouldn't occupy. Domestic work. Yeah, domestic work in well particular. Too, right? yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And, and there's not a kind of separation, right? So it's not like you have hundreds or thousands of enslaved people working on a plantation in everyday life. And this is true in other places as well. But in everyday life, um, enslaved people are working next to free people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they're working with one another. So it's yeah. not just sort of um, one cohort on one plantation, but um, there's an intermingling that allows for communication, that allows for friendships. That That's, I think, a really important part of this story, but also just of the experience of slavery in New York. I want to h- highlight some of those numbers that you, you mentioned, Kelly, just because, um, you know, you said one in four, one in five in 1712, which is the time we're talking about here. You know, we're talking about a New York City population of um, 8,000 people or so. And if you extrapolate the math um, and you talk about a rebellion that has a couple hundred people in it, that would be this, the equivalent today would be a rebellion of, you know, 25,000, 30,000 people, right? So yeah. this is when, when, when we, you know, that may sound like, oh, a small band, 50, 75, 100 people, but that's actually a massive part of the, the population. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to this night, Nikki, of April 6th. It starts with this fire that is set to spark things. Uh, how do things play out from there? Yeah, so this had been planned for a while, um, and it, it is a pretty carefully planned attack, and you can see that in the way that it, it plays out. The fire attracts all of these um, white New Yorkers who come to see what's happening, and when they gather, that's when the enslaved rebels attack, and it um, it gives them the advantage in in this fight. Um, and if you just look at the fight itself before the arrests, I mean, they, as you mentioned in the introduction, they killed nine people. Um, and what they had been hoping to do was to inspire a broader rebellion. Um, so they might have been a band of 25 or 50 people. There might have been more involved in the planning, um, but they wanted to see the bulk of those thousand enslaved people rise up. And that's ultimately where the plan kind of falls apart. Yeah, I... Slave revolts, particularly in the United States, are so tricky because Mm -hmm. they are, it's very difficult for them to become successful because you need such large numbers. And even though you might say, well, New York City is a perfect place because there are large numbers, you still have to create buy-in. And when enslaved people don't have arms and they don't have access to things other than farm equipment, you know, making this a successful revolt is a real tall order. 
Hmm. And to that end, and um, you know, if we think of this attempt to spark a larger rebellion, um, was there already a kind of conversation in the ether about rebellion? What's the metaphor? How much Tinder was already there for the spark to work? Well, I think one of the interesting facts of this revolt is that some of the enslaved people who started this were African born. And I think yeah. that makes a really big difference, too, because enslaved who were born on the continent of Africa, a lot of them were already warriors. You know, the slaves who are being traded were prisoners to war. Those were, you know, uh, warriors who lost in battle and then get traded off and, and or kidnapped or used in the slave trade. And so they're not unfamiliar with the practices of, of battle and warfare and things of that nature. Um, so that makes up a big part of it. I also think that when we think about being able to get uh, a coordinated effort put together in which someone says, I'm not going to snitch because that's also a big aspect of this too. Almost every single slave rebellion uh, ends with a snitch or someone hmm. saying, well, I don't want my master killed or I don't want to be implicated in this. And so buying is probably one of the hardest um, things because as I mentioned before, the threshold for success is so high. Hmm. And the risk is so high, right? That if you get caught as we see what ultimately happens here um they're not going to go easy on you the response Mm -mm. to slave revolts are so draconian and they're so um so harsh that you're asking people not just to risk their lives but to risk torture and to risk some really obscene um responses um if if they're caught up in the dragnet afterwards Mm -hmm. Um. And a little of that happens here, which we'll, which we'll get to. But I'm curious about the revolt itself. I mean, you know, rebelling against slavery is its own end. But I also am curious kind of about other ends here. I mean, you know, when you think of slave revolts in the South, there's potentially escape to the North. Mm-hmm. Here, this is the North, right? So I'm wondering what is what is the escape? What is the overthrow? What is the rebellion um, at the at the end of at the end of this? Mm, that's a good question. It's kind of unclear because everybody has their own motivations for rebelling. Some of it's just individual revenge against their against their masters or their mistresses. Some of it is an ability to gain um, more rights or freedoms for themselves so that people will see them as a threat and perhaps want to treat their enslaved property differently. Um, But it's not clear what what could happen as a result of this, because the idea of emancipation was not something that was at the forefront. I mean, this is before the American Revolution. So no one's thinking about liberty, equality, and all of these revolutionary ideals that we think of much later towards the end of the century. Um, So it's not known. And the timing matters here, too, because there's also um, so much of what would become the United States that doesn't have any sort of formal settlement. So the idea of just kind of disappearing into the continent is Mm -hmm. much more possible, I think, at this point. Um, And so you could imagine just a a successful revolt that just ends in disappearing into other parts of um, other parts of the continent. So we have our revolt. Um, There is a response both from white soldiers and the sort of the state, but also armed bystanders. Um, And they sweep the city for rioters and capture many of them. Um, All this again happening in sort of what is now downtown Manhattan, what is now kind of Chinatown, that area. Um, as, As we said, nine whites were killed in the riot, six were wounded. And 
let's start to get into some of the the crackdown in the aftermath here. About 40 enslaved people are brought to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, Nikki, what what is that crackdown? You started to describe it earlier. Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, the um, execution of those who were found guilty were pretty obscene, right? It, it was torture. They were burned alive. Um, they were starved to death. They were crushed. I mean, these were pretty... Um, pretty brutal executions. And then for the people who were still alive and for the people um, who weren't part of the revolt, there's a real legal crackdown in what people are able to do. You have this point where uh, enslaved people are no longer able to hold firearms. They're no longer able to gather in groups of three. Um, They're no longer allowed to gamble, um, I guess, because it's too much freedom. Um, And so this idea of trying to strip away any opportunities for enslaved people to talk to one another and Mm -hmm. to plot, um, Mm -hmm. as well as a, a form of punishment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is really indicative of the response that almost all slave rebellions had, and not even just slave rebellions, but rumored rebellions. Uh, they almost always led to mass executions, uh, mass hangings. Uh, women were not spared in this either. You know, there's a, a woman who was pregnant. They wait till she has her child, and then they execute her. Um, and so there's no mercy that's really... Um, held out for anyone. This is really one strike and you're out. They had a zero tolerance policy for how they um, imbued this violence against enslaved people who um, even rumored rebellions. And I think that's really important to know. There are people who are executed based off of rumors. This was an actual revolt, um, but it just goes to show you how violent things can get so quickly. There's one other law that we should mention, and that is a law that was put in place after the revolt that said you could only free someone you had enslaved if you paid a tax of 200 pounds per person, which was actually a price that was much higher than the price of buying someone who was enslaved. And so what they were doing was they were putting this enormous tax on freedom to prevent people from freeing enslaved people. Mm. Um it was a way of sort of keeping down the population of free blacks in New York mm-hmm. um, and also of just continuing to codify this system of enslavement um, and, and making sure that it was permanent and that there wasn't a path mm-hmm. to freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think the the stronghold that slavery had on all of the United States if, if there was a precedent that was created, well, we'll just free them, then the whole system could collapse. Then mm-hmm. any revolt that could lead to emancipation was a bad move on, on the part of slaveholders. And so ensuring that even people who wanted to do the right thing couldn't or couldn't afford it, um, not just politically, but economically, was something that was very intentional. Um, slavery is not outlawed in New York until 1799, until the end of the uh, 18th century. I'm sure we'll find a chance to do an episode about about that. But Kelly, very briefly, kind of, can you paint the paint the sketch of what happens between the early part of the century and the late part of the century that then New York ends up outlawing it? Yeah, there there are a number of revolts that take place in the 18th century, and I think the difference is that oftentimes those revolts are about seeking 
individual freedom or freedom for a group of people or freedom for a particular town. Um, it's not necessarily about overthrowing the entire system. But by the time you get to the 19th century, Nat Turner's rebellion is about an overthrow of the entire system. Um, Gabriel Prosser's plot and all of that, these really bigger um, or potentially bigger rebellions are about eradicating the system altogether. And I think that's the difference from when slavery is still sort of forming or hardening within this um, newly formed what is to become America. Um, and then once America is America, it's about completely overthrowing Just because the by that point, it's much more systemic, right? <laughs> oh, much more systemic yeah. and, and larger. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are four million people who are enslaved by the time of the Civil yeah. War. Why does New York end slavery in 1799? So I'll, I'll say that it's it's complicated and it varies in every state throughout the North. But as we get to the American Revolution and even after the American Revolution, African-Americans have ideas. They have co-opted these ideas about what freedom and liberty and equality mean. There are cases in which black people are suing for their freedom. Um, there are soldiers who fought in the American Revolution and are also saying, hey, I too should be free. Um, and so throughout the North, you do get large pockets of Black people gaining their freedom, obtaining their freedom, either through military service or through the courts. And it starts the long erosion of black people gaining their freedom and eventually um, complete uh, emancipation throughout the North. But um, I don't know. Everybody in the North starts to end slavery. But it's everyone in the North is industrializing right. and becoming more urban and... Um, it's just a different, it's a different way of living. Um, but I can't necessarily, I'm sure there are scholars that have written about yeah. <laughs> I just realized that I didn't know. And I was like, right. oh, maybe well, there's an easy answer yeah, to this. Yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it just changes uh, based on necessity and based on the market. Right. And the fact that there's no plantations, yeah. I think is, a, you know, they have Wall Street to do that work. Yeah. Well, that's a very good answer, but I also think listeners, you know, the last minute, that's the sound of us deciding on a future segment uh, where, we <laughs> yeah, will, where we will dig into this and find a, find a hook because, yeah, I'm very fascinated by that sort of change in around 1790 to 1800. Um, but that brings us yeah. to the end of this episode. So, um, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Kala Nakua helps with our transcripts, which you can find at thisdaypod.com. Also on our website, I don't mention this often enough, but uh, you can also find our theme music there. If you want to download it, you can download it there. A number of people have reached out and asked about the theme music. Follow us on social media. We're posting a bunch of stuff at This Day Pod on Instagram and Twitter every day. Thanks again to everyone who has reached out with comments and questions and potential topics. You can email us thisdaypod at gmail.com. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.
Support for this day in esoteric political history comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash this day. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash this day. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. 